Lord Jesus, we thank you that your office is at the end of our ropes, and Lord, that uh, in spite of all that we deal with in life, uh, greater is he uh, who has overcome the world than is he who is in the world. So, Lord Jesus, we lean upon you and not on our own understanding. Come and visit us this morning uh, in your word, that it might uh, transform us more and more into your likeness for our good and for your glory. Amen. Okay, this morning I want to talk a little bit about, uh, it's just a little sketch of Julian Fellows, uh, who's written the Downton Abbey series, uh, a couple books, and uh, as well as he did the script for Gosford Park, if you saw that one. Um, that, that's a little dark because of Robert Altman. Uh, he's, he's just dark. Uh, so, but this is real Julian Fellows, uh, and uh, his book Snobs is pretty good too, especially if you happen to be a snob. Um, but... Um, uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Tennessee Williams. And, in Downton, and this morning what I want to um, highlight is that um, we live in a world where there's a deep desire for grace and forgiveness uh, and generosity, even though people may not articulate it that way. Um, and I'm not talking about um, uh, I just want to be able to, to get away with things, but uh, there are things that keep all of us up at night, uh, whether you're a Christian or not. And, uh, and it's those things that, uh, it's that thing, um, William Temple, who was Archbishop of Canterbury way back in the day, called it the nightmare test. And he said, what is it that gives you nightmares? Uh, what do you dread uh, people finding out about you that you work very, very hard uh, to keep hidden? Uh, there's a theory called uh, the stage theory, which is that your life is like a stage, right? And, uh, and what you do in your life is you manage it to the extent that you have everything on the front stage that you want people to see, and then in the backstage, those things that are very much a part of your life, but you don't want anybody to see. Uh, but if you're a real human being, eventually those things that you've begun to stow away in the backstage begin to creep out onto the front stage. And, uh, and how you deal with those. And, um, and what I've found uh, in my life and what the scripture teaches is that there is real power in having an advocate. Uh, someone who actually knows you to the bottom and uh, doesn't say what you did was all right. Uh, you know, there are people that will, you know, when you say, I'm sorry, and they say, well, that's all right. Um, that's something I had to work long and hard on to stop saying. Uh, because... If someone's apologizing for something, it's probably not all right. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's wrong. Um, and I needed to start saying and really mean it, I forgive you. Uh, I forgive you. Um, and for someone to know something about you, uh, and really it may not be one thing. There are some of us in this room who may not have done one thing that keeps us up at night. And maybe it's just sort of, uh, you know, certain tendencies that you have, certain uh, neurotic tendencies. Lauren's uh, mom gave her some very good advice uh, before she got married, I'm not going to talk about the rose on the pillow bit. So, uh, you, you said, uh, but, uh, but, uh, and she's right. Uh, she said, um, she said, you know, uh, Lauren, those things that uh, that Andrew does that really annoy you, uh, one of three things is going to happen. They are either going to get better. He's going to get better. Uh, he's going to get worse, or it will stay the same. And 99% of the time, it's the latter two. Right? At best, it just kind of stays the same. And, um, and when you know somebody, know, when you love somebody, knowing that about them and knowing them through and through and everything about them, and you still love them, uh, there is real power in that. And that was uh, the ministry of Jesus, that he knew people to the bottom, and, and yet um, he still loved them. 
And uh, I want to turn this morning to two scripture passages. One is John chapter 8, which is the woman caught in adultery. And this is uh, our Downton Abbey segment. So let's look at John chapter 8 very quickly. Uh, this is the woman caught, into, caught in adultery. Uh, early in the morning he came again to the temple, that is Jesus, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Um, this is a breathtaking story of um, uh, justice unfulfilled. Uh, in the Psalms, it talks about uh, righteousness and peace kissing. Right? And, and those are two things that often uh, almost never come together uh, because you've got righteousness on the one hand, you've got peace on the one hand, you've got love on the one hand, justice on one hand. And really, uh, it's very hard to bring those two together because justice demands something, doesn't it? It demands uh, satisfaction. Uh, and we all have within us this deep, inherent need for justice to be fulfilled. Uh, several years ago, Lauren and I were driving in my hometown that has two police officers. And uh, they finally bought a second car so they don't have to share. Um, but uh, two police officers, and we were driving down the main road, and there's this car full of teenagers that were having a very good time. It came zipping around at a T-junction to turn onto the main street. And there was a stop sign there. And they just blew right through it onto main street. And of course, I mean, I'm slamming on the brakes. And it was, it was a close call. And all of a sudden, as they zoomed in front of us and turned left, I caught it in my rearview mirror, the blue lights. And I thought, yes, <laughs> justice. Right? I mean, how many times has that happened to us when we see that and we just think, oh, wouldn't it be great if that, you know, someone goes speeding by you and then you pass them while they've been pulled over and you think, ha, 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 ha. Well, uh, this in John's Gospel is actually a very serious thing. Um, and uh, they have been caught red-handed. This lady, it says that they caught her in the act of adultery. Um, they caught her in bed. Uh, with the, you wonder, well, where's the guy, right? He's gone. So it's entirely possible that she was set up. But nonetheless, whether she was set up or not, she was guilty. She was guilty as charged. They bring her uh, to Jesus uh, there, and uh, it's not there anymore, but where Jesus was sitting and drawing in the dirt, and you, don't you th wonder, what was he writing? And, I mean, it could have been a smiley face. I don't know. But uh, yeah, there are lots of theories about it, but I don't want to go there because it doesn't say what he wrote. Uh, but overlooking them was a huge fortress, the Antonian Fortress, which used to be in Jerusalem, which held the entire Roman garrison for the city of Jerusalem. So it was headquarters. So while all of this is going on, you've got Roman guards looking down on this scene. And that's why it says that they were trying to test Jesus. Because on the one hand, um, Jewish law and Roman law were very different. And really the only people who had the authority 
to do anything like this were the Romans. Right? But at the same time, if Jesus had given the word, they were ready to go. Why? Because they wanted a political Messiah, and this could be the beginning of the fulfillment. They were trying to catch Jesus. Either he was about to be thrust in the position of a political Messiah, or he would be seen as um, tossing the law aside and not fulfilling what justice demanded. And yet here's this woman uh, who they caught her in the act, so at best she's wearing a bedsheet at best, um, and she's standing in front of all these men who at this point have picked up stones, and uh, she is thinking, these are the last moments of my life, uh, naked, uh, afraid, um, ashamed, uh, and um, she's hearing the whole conversation going on, and so she's probably not holding out a lot of hope because uh, she sees no way out of this. And then Jesus does something un fathomable. He forgives her. He forgives her. Now, he forgives her because she has a repentant heart. Now, I know you say, well, it doesn't say that explicitly. Um, But uh, what we find is that uh, this woman leaves a changed woman because there was nothing that Jesus could say or do in this moment that would make her feel any worse than she already felt. Right? I mean, If I were her, I probably would say, you know, let's just get this over with. Just kill me. I can't take the agony of all these people looking at me uh, with their eyes and their stones in their hands. And Jesus says, he who is without sin, let them be the first to cast a stone. And John goes out of his way to say something very interesting. And he says, who are the first ones to put down their stones and leave? The oldest, right? Uh, The people that were maybe a little more self-aware, that could say like Paul, but for the grace of God, the only difference between me and this woman is she got caught. And the older ones left first. And Jesus forgives this woman in a very powerful way that is life-changing. Church legend says that she went on, that this is the same woman, although, again, it doesn't say it, but this is uh, Mary who was uh, the the prostitute, you know, the one that goes and breaks perfume over Jesus' feet and uh, washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. Um, There's a thought that this is the same woman. But regardless... Uh, that would be great if it, if it was, and maybe it was. But um, nonetheless, uh, here she is that she has been forgiven uh, when she deserved uh, to be absolutely and literally smashed, destroyed, um, killed. And um, when you experience forgiveness like that, uh, it is so liberating uh, that um, really is there much that can... Can, can take you down? Uh, is there much that, that you won't be able to face in the world uh, to know that that thing, which everybody knows about, uh, has been get forgiven? Sometimes I repeat stories and so uh, get over it. Um, but uh, Lauren, Lauren's good at it reminding me when I've done this. But I know I said this in Friday's Bible study, but forgive me. Um, uh, when Fitz Allison was the rector of Grace Church in Manhattan, there was a woman who was... Uh, caught up in a scandalous affair uh, in the congregation. And, uh, and uh, everybody, was, she and this man, they left the church and they weren't seen. And then one day she showed up at Fitz's study and uh, said, Fitz, I'm undone, I'm broken, I need forgiveness, and, and I repent. And of course, uh, Fitz Allison did 
the right thing and, and restored her and prayed with her and, and uh, with tears streaming down both of their faces, she left the office. Well, that Sunday was a communion Sunday at Grace Church and you can imagine the whispers when she walked into the nave of the church and you can imagine uh, the raised eyebrows uh, when she got out of her pew and made her way to the communion rail uh, and knelt and received the bread and the wine and then made her way back to her seat uh, with every eye on her. And you know that she felt it. She felt every eye on her as she, she was uh, receiving communion. And at the end of the service, a very angry vestryman uh, came up to Fitz and really let him have it. And Fitz, exasperated, you know, said, look, this woman was repentant. Uh, she has received the forgiveness of our Lord. And he said, and after all, even Jesus forgave the woman who was caught in adultery. And, and the vestryman said, yes, and I didn't think very much of him about doing that either. Um, uh, a true story. Um, I mean, but it's a sad commentary on the world that we live in where someone once said that every, the world that we live in, everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven. Everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven. And uh, here we have uh, the woman in John chapter 8 and uh, the lady at Grace Church. And the only thing uh, that would get this woman in John chapter 8 uh, through the rest of her life and that woman at Grace Church Manhattan uh, through the rest of her life, if not just through that communion service. Uh, the reason why she was able to stand up and walk, even though with some trepidation, but with a certain boldness in her step to the communion rail and then back, is because of what Jesus Christ had done for her. That she knew that in spite of the rest of the world saying, uh, you're awful, you're a sinner, uh, you don't deserve it, what you deserve is to be stoned and to be cast out, she knew that she had an advocate that said, you're loved and you're forgiven. You know, in life, sometimes that's enough. In life, that is enough uh, to be able to uh, enter into life uh, knowing uh, that what you have is more than just the sum of your deeds, good or bad, but in fact is rooted uh, in the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. And the world screams out for this. This is what the world so longs for. And even though they may not be able to articulate it, we find it all around us. So I'm going to show a little clip from Downton Abbey. And let me just um, ex give you a little uh, background. Um, uh, yes? Okay, so... Um, yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. Wait a moment. Wait a moment. Um, so, uh, okay. Um, so what you need to know is that Downton Abbey is this huge palatial feudal home uh, in England. This is right before the outbreak of World War One, and things are very much if you watch the Forsyth saga or upstairs, downstairs. It's very much like that. And the eldest daughter and the family really needs to marry uh, and um, is looking uh, for someone to marry her. And she ends up getting tangled up. There's a, a visitor whose name is Mr. Pamuk, who is the son of some Turkish ambassador who is very attractive. And he lets himself enter her room one night. And uh, while uh, they are in bed together, although they haven't really started doing anything, he dies. And, uh, and so she, of course, needs to move him back to the bachelor's hallway where he is staying, and she can't do it on her own. So her mother and one of the servants move this dead body back into the man's bed and sort of make it look like nothing happened. Well, there were a couple witnesses 
uh, in the house, one servant and one of her sisters. And one of her sisters, who's awful, Edith, um, is, uh, basically runs her mouth and tells people to undermine her sister's future intentionally. Like she says, uh, basically, Mary, my sister, has done this, and she does, if she thinks that she's going to get away with it, she's got another thing coming. Well, it makes itself around London circles. And, of course, I mean, if this happened in our day and age, this would be very bad. But imagine Victorian England, right? This is a death sentence. This is a death sentence. So at this point, a letter has been written from a family member in London. It's making its way in London circles to the grandmother, the, grand, uh, the, the dowager countess, who is played by Maggie Smith. Uh, and Maggie Smith gets this letter outlining what happened with Mr. Pamuk. And so she calls her daughter-in-law to her home to ask about it. And so that's where we are. Charles, where? Charles, uh, I need someone to get the lights. Just a minute. But who's it from? Oh. Really? Who's in future? What is she saying? Can you all hear that? The worst, not the first page. Okay, okay I'll have to rewind it. Oh. Start there. I'm sorry. I am sorry to have to tell you that Hugh has heard a vile story. Can y'all hear that? Yes. You can hear that? No. All right, well, listen real hard. <laughs> Be encouraged. Just a minute. It's a good thing we have so much time around here at the Advent. Okay. Susan Fincher. What does she say? Well, prepare yourself for the worst. Not the first page. I thought he's never used his right mind to attend to or do. Not the stomach. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to have to tell you that Hugh has heard a vile story about your granddaughter, Mary. Sorry. Robert's the father. Okay, 
so here we have a mother who um, who admits, you know, what has happened is is terrible and it is wrong and it is, uh, and yet uh, one of the things she's doing, she's not going to tell her husband, she's not going to involve her husband in it, and uh, and two, uh, she's uh, not going to disown her daughter, which anybody in this day and age would have done. They would have said the best thing to save the family reputation uh, is is to simply disown her. Right? And even though now it has been made public, and there probably is a slim chance that, she be, uh, that if they disown her, then they'll be able to, um, to get on with life, uh, she, refuses, uh, she refuses to do it. She refuses to do it. So you can only uh, imagine uh, Mary. Um, uh, now, Mary uh, is there, and um, she thinks about this constantly. It keeps her up at night. It, it's, it's a nightmare uh, situation. And yet, here she has her mother and one of the servants uh, who have gone uh, to battle uh, for them. And here's the mother standing between her and the rest of the world who are demanding uh, that justice be done. Like, you know, the grandmother says, do not try to, uh, to justify uh, what you've done to me or what you've done. Well, really, she's talking about her. I mean, she's really caring about herself. Uh, but don't try to, to make, uh, don't try to justify uh, what you've done. Uh, when in fact, what she's done is she has now implicated herself uh, in a way that will destroy her. Right? Uh, she's now an accessory uh, to, I mean, I guess, I don't think it's, well, we'll find out in season two uh, what, what really happened. Um, but she's implicated herself in the whole sordid affair and taken it upon herself. And this is Julian Fellows, who is not a Christian. He's, he's not a Christian. Uh, and yet, what he has just articulated is what? John chapter 8. John chapter 8. You better believe that there are people in John chapter 8 who, who are furious uh, with Jesus over this. Furious with him. Uh, you have humiliated us and you have uh, shirked your responsibility to fulfill the law. And so if Julian Fellows is talking about this, um, and uh, the reason, one of the reasons why Downton Abbey is so wildly popular, uh, Tommy Mayfield uh, is actually going to be in a stage production uh, next year. Uh, just that's a joke. Tommy doesn't really care for it. Um, <laughs> just kidding, Tommy. Uh, but... Um, uh, one of the reasons why it's so wildly popular because it hits on a nerve and it, it appeals to people who uh, long to have people in their lives who will stand between them and the world that is out for blood, uh, that is out, uh, that, that hopes that, that everyone uh, who has done wrong gets caught, even though all of us are in the same boat. Uh, just some of us have been caught and others of us have not been yet. And so here we have is this power of an advocate uh, who is, in this case, uh, the mother, uh, but ultimately that is going to be flawed because um, uh, as the season goes on, um, you will find that, um, that people are fickle. People change their dispositions. And so uh, if you've ever uh, looked to uh, a human being, even though there's power in it, but if you're looking to them for your ultimate security uh, and knowing that all is well, uh, you're going to be disappointed. All of us at some level can say, uh, I, I understand that, uh, but there's a propensity amongst human beings to continue to, to pour ourselves into things uh, for security. Uh, normally it is other people, uh, even our spouses, uh, it, jobs, uh, causes, 
whatever it might be. Uh, but in the end, uh, those things uh, will ultimately uh, let us down. And so I, I hope that, um, that the questions that Julian Fellows raises uh, ultimately find their answer in Jesus Christ. I know that, but I hope that the viewers would know that. Uh, that there is, uh, an ad- you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect offering for our sins. He's not just kind of a help. He's not going to help you move the body down the hallway. Uh, but uh, he is the perfect, off- perfect. Actually, uh, it is as if um, that which you have done, it's not as if they're in the know and they, you know, they, they've got something to hold over their head, but it is as if it never happened. Again, Friday, forgive me, you've heard this that um, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is more than simply a forgiveness of sins. I forgive you. I forgive you. But um, what he also did in that is that he removed the law's demand for punishment. He removed the wrath of God, which we deserve, the stoning which we deserve for the sins that we've committed. He's taken that upon himself as well. And the Bible uses two words for this. And one is expiation, which simply means that the cross was a forgiveness of sins. And the other word is propitiation, which means that the, the cross is not only a satisfaction for your sins, but it also averts the punishment which you justly and rightly deserve. I like the second one uh, a little bit better. Um, and, and that is what the Greek word means that is you, as propitiation. And, uh, and if you want to know the difference, to use a crass example, um, Fitz Al, it's Fitz Allison's example, so blame him. Uh, if you've ever had a puppy and you have to house train it, uh, and uh, you're trying to house train it, and it makes a mess on your beautiful oriental rug, um, and you chastise the dog, but after a while you just can't stay at the dog angry forever, and so you kind of go up and you say, look, uh, I forgive you, dog. <laughs> right? Uh, that's expiation, uh, but you still have a mess to clean up, and that's propitiation. Uh, the dog's forgiven, but propitiation actually cleans up the mess so that it's as if it never even happened. And that's what the cross does. Jesus looks at you as if you are perfect, even though you know that you're not. Uh, it's as if it never, the, the sins that you have committed and your nature, uh, through the lens of the cross, uh, he sees you as perfect. And if you've ever encountered a perfect human being, um, you haven't. Uh, but, man, they would be easy to love. Wouldn't they be easy to love if they just did everything right all the time? Uh, I always, you know, marriage vows are so funny when you say, uh, for better, for worse, or for richer, for poor, uh, in sickness and health, richer, for poor, better, for worse. And what marriage vows really mean is for sick, for poor, and for worse. Uh, because it's really easy to love someone who's got a lot of money, is really hot and got it going on, and, and is just awesome all the time, right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Um, uh, but, and the reason why, and when the minister says, you know, uh, you know do you take, uh, you don't say, I do, like you do in the movies. You say, I will. Right? Why? If you, when you, we're never going to look any better than we do on our wedding day. Right? It, you know, it's just the way that it is. And so, you know, when Lauren is, is, is there, and, and I'm looking extraordinary, and uh, Lauren comes up, and, and here's Lauren, and, and, uh, and Ed Salmon, who married us, uh, Bishop Salmon says, Andrew, do you take Lauren to be your wife? I mean, just looking at her at that moment and all our friends and family, I mean, it's easy for me to say, I do, yes, right now, I love her. I, you know, but then two weeks down the road, a year down the road, uh, that's why we say I will, because real love happens and real forgiveness happens in the I will moments, in the worse, poor, and, uh, and sick moments. And, and yet Jesus loves us as if we're rich, as if we're better, and as if we're well. Um, 
And, and that is powerful stuff. And the thing about it is, is when his righteousness is imputed to us, which those qualities are, are all what he is about, when they're given to us, uh, they actually begin to show forth in our life. Uh, even though, you know, it's sort of like the, the little boy. You know, if you tell your child, uh, and I, I know none of you do this, and I'm serious about that. Uh, if you tell your child, you know, you're, you're worthless or you're stupid, um, they're going to grow up thinking what? They're worthless and stupid. But um, I always think, you know, but in spite of the fact that your child uh, might uh, be a little behind the curve on something, but if you tell them um, you're brilliant, uh, you can do anything. uh, Well, I wouldn't say you can do anything under the sun because that's a lie. Uh, But uh, but, you know, know, you're 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 wonderful. Uh, You're loved. Uh, You're capable. Um, All of a sudden you find people who are not necessarily capable doing things that they're incapable of. That's just a small way of explaining imputation. And that is what Julian Fellows is crying out for in Downton Abbey. Now, um, to shift gears a little bit, uh, I want to talk about how this works amongst Christians. Um, And I'm going to read a a couple of lines from um, Tennessee Williams' play, uh, The Night of the Iguana, um, which you can watch the movie with Richard Burton and Ava Gardner, and, uh, and it's really great. Um, but what you need to know is that uh, the main character, uh, Dr. Shannon, is a defrocked Episcopal minister, which is convenient for us. And, um, and so after he's sort of forced out of the ministry, he's an alcoholic, uh, and the opening scene is, is him in the pulpit weeping and just berating his congregation. And uh, he ultimately goes to Mexico and leads bus tours. And, uh, and on one of these bus tours, he gets a bus tour of women from a Baptist college in Texas. And uh, on, uh, I won't tell you what happens, uh, but basically it's a real pain in the neck. And, um, and he has gone to Mexico to try to escape the situation, uh, but he ends up running into uh, a lady named Hannah Jelks, who is an itinerant pa- painter and who has resigned herself. She's very attractive, but she's resigned herself to singleness for the rest of her life in order to care for her aging father. And it is Hannah who begins to nurse Dr. Shannon back into shape, giving him spiritual counsel and caring for him as no one has before. And the real breakthrough comes one evening after dinner when Shannon and Hannah find themselves alone on the veranda. And Hannah removes a crumpled pack of cigarettes from her pocket and she discovers only two left in, her, in the pack and decides to save them for later and returns the pack to her pocket. And then Shannon sees her do this and says, May I have one of your cigarettes, Miss Jelks? She offers him the pack. He takes it from her and crumples it up and throws it off the veranda. Never smoke those. They're made out of tobacco from cigarette stubs that beggars pick up off the sidewalks out of the gutters in Mexico City. He then produces a tin of English cigarettes. Have one of these Benson and Hedges, imported in an airtight tin, my luxury in life. Hannah says, Why, thank you. I will, since you've thrown mine away. Shannon, I'm going to tell you something about yourself. You are a lady, a real one and a great one. Hannah, what have I done to merit the compliment from you? Shannon, it isn't a compliment. It's just a report on what I've noticed about you at a time when it's hard for me to notice anything outside myself. You took out those Mexican cigarettes. You found you had just two left. You can't afford to buy a new pack, even that cheap brand. So you put them away for later, right? Hannah, mercilessly accurate, Mr. Shannon. Shannon, 
But when I asked you for one, you offered it to me without a sign of reluctance. Hannah, are you making a big point out of a small matter? Shannon, just the opposite. I'm making a small point out of a very large matter. Uh, what we find here is that, uh, that in uh, her offering up these two terrible cigarettes, uh, she is the only person that has shown grace to Dr. Shannon uh, in many a year, even probably while all the stuff that was going on in his former church has happened. And it is rightly said that Christians are the only to shoot their wounded, uh, and we often do that. And the world revels, absolutely revels, when Christians fall from grace, don't they? They love it. It gets sort of top billing. Uh, several years ago, we had Ted Haggard, who was the megachurch pastor, uh, who was really involved in some crazy stuff, uh, out in Colorado Springs, head of the National Association of Evangelicals. And um, at the time, I was uh, a semester at Trinity Seminary, and there was this guy named Paul Zoll there. And, um, and we were talking about it in this big class. And uh, this one kid in the back uh, had just had enough of, uh, of what was being said and said, this just goes to show you that he wasn't a Christian after all. And everybody just sort of froze. And Paul Zoll, in typical Paul fashion, said, well, then let's kill him. <laughs> um, uh, and, and the point he was making is he's making John chapter 8, right? Well, then let's kill him. Right? Uh, and, uh, and see, that's just it, is that oftentimes Christians, and daggone it, I'm going to have to do this another time. Uh, Christians um, are often uh, the least uh, gracious uh, toward those because our understanding is, is that it's fine for you to be that way before you become a Christian, but now that you're a Christian, you can't be that way. Right? And even though it might be an honest fall from grace, like, look, you know, uh, this was bad, and even though you're saying it's bad, we're just going to have to cut you off. And, uh, and at worst, people say, well, you can't really use them as an example because they weren't really Christians after all. And in fact, if you knew these people personally, you knew full and well that they were. But they lived uh, in a world of Christianity and in the church area that they were in that uh, they thought they couldn't... Uh, come to another Christian in the way that someone in the world like Julian Fellows can say that a daughter can come to a mother, that in the church there's often this perception, and is all, because it's real, uh, that we can't go to other believers and say, look, this is what happened. Uh, someone died in my bed, and I need you to carry them back to the bachelor's corridor. Um, and uh, without the fear of judgment. And yet here we have Jesus right here uh, saying to us, uh, um, you know, uh, go and, and sin uh, no more, neither do I condemn you. And I'm sorry, I'm going to have to probably leave it at that, even though I have a lot more to say, and it's kind of open-ended, except to say uh, that, look, this is what the world is screaming for, uh, and this is what the world observes. And uh, Jesus' mercy extends also to Christians. Uh, it extends also to Christians, and in a way, as I said, uh, that transforms our lives, and not just the lives of those uh, who are becoming Christians, but uh, as Christians, we need to hear it too. And uh, Jesus still comes into our lives and, uh, and cleans up our messes. 
Uh, not so that we might do it again, uh, but that we might be changed and that we might be able to live knowing that we have an advocate uh, that stands between us and judgment. And he takes the wrath upon himself. And, uh, and that is powerful. The world talks about it and that we might be able to point them toward the ultimate answer uh, to their questions about uh, who will rescue me, uh, who will stand on the gap for me. And that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we pray that even though we didn't get finished, that you would continue uh, the work of your spirit and that you would continue to work on us. And Lord, we thank you uh, that the world cries out uh, for a savior. And Lord, that you have answered definitively in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, that we might uh, look around us uh, for those uh, things that exude uh, the grace that all of you that might simply be a shadow, but nonetheless uh, a cry for help, and that we might love one another as you have loved us and uh, stand in the gap for our fellow believers. In Jesus' name, amen.